Christian of Faith. Today we are in chapter 3, section 5. Chapter 3 is all about God's eternal decrees, um, especially about salvation, uh, this idea of predestination, or this idea of double predestination, which we talked about last week. Uh, okay, that's fine. Um, so let me read section 5. Uh, remembering in, last week, when we read section 3 and section 4, oh, uh, watch out, Rod, because there's a there's a coffee right there, right next to the... Here, maybe somebody can hand me that coffee. Karen, can you hand me that coffee so so we don't accidentally spill? Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, last week, sections three and four, let me just read that again just to refresh our memory. Uh, chapter three, section three, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting, everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. So section three, uh, talking about God's predestination or double predestination, double meaning some are predestined unto life and others predestined unto death. And section three mentioning both men and angels are, are predestined this way. Okay, so that was section three. Section four says this, these angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. And so section four there talking about how the, 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 the number of those who are predestined unto life and the number of those who are predestined unto death are actually set. This is a set number. This is a, a, a particular number. Uh, it neither increases or decreases um, based on whatever conditions. God, God is the one that predetermines everything. And when he predetermines, there's an actual number that, that he predestined. And basically, we made the uh, several conclusions. Basically, the, the reason why we believe this is because the word of God tells us so. Uh, Jesus says, for example, Jesus says many times, I know the sheep that are that have been that the Father has given to me. In fact, in other places, Jesus knows, says, I know my sheep by name. Uh, he has to then, you know, you work that out logically. Uh, there has to be a definite number if Jesus knows all his sheep that are given to him by the Father and he knows them by name. Um, but we also said that it has to be this way. Otherwise, God is not powerful enough to save anyone. Um, if we humans can influence somehow by our own work or our own deeds or our own qualities, if somehow we can change the number of people that God saves or the, you know, change the number of people that go into heaven. Um, more than that, we can exist. Sure. Yeah. If we're able to increase that number or decrease that number, then God is not powerful to save anyone. That's why I said my Baptist friend did twice. She said, no, you can choose or not choose because God leads us to it. So we're going to essentially, Christ is not effective in salvation. Exactly. Exactly. You work all that out uh, by logical implication, then Christ's sacrifice was not efficacious. Right. 
It might have been 99% correlative, but not causative. Okay. Um, you know, the difference between correlation and causation. Well, weird historical things like Wesley would say, well, Christ's death uh, deals with original sin, makes it possible for you. Right. So, so in a sense, you can't choose him unless he died, but you could still not be saved. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, so essentially what you're saying is that the entire human race could choose to reject his sacrifice, which made it meaningless. Yeah, yeah and there's variations of that. So, so some... You know, there's there's variations of uh, theologians who uh, have one way or another of saying we get to choose. Some say uh, more like Wesley. Um, you know, we we have more of an active uh, choice in choosing Christ or or not. Uh, others are are sort of they don't like that. That's too you know that's too too much choice. Um, but they also don't want to. You know, go completely and affirm that God preordains everything, and so they will say. For example, the Lutherans will say, "Well, God preordains everything, uh, but you you have the opportunity to resist. So it's not like you choose God, but you have to actively resist Him. You have to actively resist that grace in order for you to end up in hell." There's also a so it's like they 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 try to have. They try to have both, and it's just not possible. It just doesn't, you know. Because they're trying to protect man. I don't hear any of those in our circles, but one that I've heard in our circles is kind of a watered-down Reformed approach, which is that, well, it's single predestination, uh -huh. basically. I mean, I don't know what it's called theologically, but the idea is that God elects his people, and he sort of just, like, passes over the others and lets them naturally. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. They're not yeah. predestined to yeah. eternal damnation. Yeah. They're just not rescued <laughs> from that. Yeah. So it, you know, it's not perfectly acceptable either, but yeah, it, it softens the deep double depression. Oh, sure. No, I, I disagree with that. In a sense it is because it says everyone's born in sin and it's already condemned. So if you were condemned because you're in your sin, you know that you were born in that. So God chooses out of those. He even says it at one point. He says he chooses out of those who are no all, all good points um we we did say we did mention and all of this is just review uh but so so what in this part uh quickly but we did say last week, you know, you mentioned, Mark, they're, they're trying to soften something. But what are they trying to soften? They're basically trying to soften God's word and what God has revealed about his choice, clearly in Scripture. Um, we read that part in uh, Romans, I, I believe it was Romans 9, and that part about God's double predestination could not be more clear. It's not the grammar. It's not the words. It's not the sent. It's not a confounding sentence. It just comes out and says it. God is the potter. We are the clay. What right does the clay have to say to the potter? Why did you make some, me this way? Right. And it's for his glory. Yeah. And so, so there's no grammatical or semantic question about what that verse is saying. Our objection is we don't like what 
God says. And we want to assert, basically, it basically just boils down to that. We want to assert our virtue and our morality above, over, against God. We think we're better people uh, than, than, than God. Um, and basically, when push came to shove and Paul was pushed and pushed to, to answer that question, well, why does God find fault? Paul eventually says, stop. You have no right. We have no right to question the creator. So Paul doesn't even entertain that question to the end. He basically you know, puts up a stop sign and says, look, that's it, right? We are the creatures, and we have no right to, to, to question who the, uh, what the creator does with his creation. Okay. Today, in section 5, uh, we go into more detail about this idea of predestination. Specifically, we answer questions like when. When did God predestine? How? According to what did he uh, base his predestination? To what end? What was his goal? What was his purpose? Um, uh, things like that. So let's read section 5. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, in the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, so there it talks about a couple things about God's predestination. When? When did it happen? Um, it happened before the foundation of the world was laid. Um, and for that, we can go to a passage like Ephesians 1, chapter 1. Ephesians 1, chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 4. Or let's start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Going down to verse 5. Okay, yeah. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather to, together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, so there in verse 4, clearly uh, the Bible says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. How? According to what? Uh, there, as we read several times in Ephesians 1, all according to the pleasure of God's will. 
um, to his, uh, verse 11. He predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So everything was according to just God's will and God's counsel um, and God's good pleasure. And no other reason. There's no, no other reason, certainly not in the creature themselves. No goodness in the creature, no foresight into what the creature would be like, uh, no uh, thought about the potentiality of the creature, okay, or the potential of, of this and that being, uh, or that, or what this or that being might do in their lives. Um, no thought about possibilities. Everything was predetermined by God's will and His counsel. To what end? Um, it's to the end of his glory. Um, there's, it says at the end of the section five, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, we read a lot of that in Ephesians just now. Um, for example, verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So why did God choose to do things this way? For his own glory. <laughs> For his, so that, you know, all creation would praise him and would praise uh, the glory of his grace. Let's read a couple more verses. Romans 8. A verse that's used a lot, maybe misused a lot, uh, let's let's read verse uh, Romans eight twenty eight to thirty, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And a lot of times people just leave it there, mm -hmm. because they don't like to define. They don't like to let the Bible define. Well, what is it meant? Work together for good. Okay, we like to define that for ourselves, right? We like to think, well, God chose me to do good for me, and I get to define what good is, <laughs> all right? That's not what the Bible does. The Bible actually then goes on to explain what this good is. For whom, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that good that God does for us includes he predestines us, he, he foreknew us, meaning he knew us before the foundation of the world, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That would throw a wrench to a lot of people. You mean, you know, the good that God has done for me doesn't mean I get to live my life as I choose and, and do everything I want to do? No, it doesn't. It means that you are being conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there you even get the, the what, what is the end purpose of God's predestination? It's so that God would be glorified um, in us as we are glorified. As he glorifies us, he himself receives the glory. Um, a couple more verses. Second Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter one, verse nine. 
I'll start with verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So there you get a couple parts of that, right? Uh, God predestined us before time began, before the foundation, before there was even a concept such as time, before God created time. Uh, that's basically what it's saying there. Uh, from eternity, God chose us. Uh, and according to what? According to his own purpose and grace. It's a good thing that the Bible mentions his grace and not his according to not not his justice or wrath or even his holiness right he 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 chose us according to his grace knowing full well that we would be sinners born in sin okay so it's it's a good thing that god counsel that he used to 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 predestine or to elect some unto salvation that that was coming from his grace um no creaturely condition. We we kind of read uh, this aspect before in Romans 9, that God predestines not based on any creaturely condition, not based on any, as it says in the uh, Confession of Faith, uh, he did this out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions. And there, um, we're taking uh, we're taking our uh, verses from Romans 9, verses 11 to 16, talking about Jacob and Esau. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, out of him who calls. It was said to her, the older, meaning... Uh, Rebecca, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Uh, there, the Bible basically saying that, uh, according to the culture of that time, uh, the older one, Esau, was supposed to get all the blessing. But God chose Jacob. But then why did God choose Jacob? Was it because Jacob and Esau had done anything at that point? No, because they were still unborn. Right, they were still in the womb. Um, was it because of any potential, you know, potential or possi possibility of faith and good works? Not at that point, because they were, you know, they were not yet born. And yet, at that stage, it was at that stage that God chose Jacob, uh, simply because. Sorry. Go ahead. If I can say, you know, what the argument on the other side is, is God did see ahead of time what they would do, which is why He chose. Right. Right. And then the response would be, well, look at actually the life of Jacob and Esau. Right. Who was more honorable? Right. As the okay, right. sure, Esau uh, sold his birthright, but Jacob deceived. Um, and especially at that later point when they reunite as adults, Jacob is despicable, and Esau's the bigger quote-unquote, the bigger man, right? Esau goes and meets his brother and says, look, you know, 
I'm not going to destroy you, you know, come back to the family, right? So Esau, by human standards, is the more honorable, becomes the more honorable person, right? If you read Genesis, you, you know that account, right? He acts honorably towards Jacob, and Jacob all throughout is just this deceiving, lying, you know, person, cheater. cheater. Sure. Before creation. But in the wrong view that Baptists and many others teach is that God looked down the corridor of time and he saw that we would believe, therefore he predestined us. And it's backwards. He predestined yeah. us because he predestined us. And even right, and even the way you just said that, like if you really think about it, like what does that mean? Like what's the difference between God does have foreknowledge. He he knows all things. But he knows us intimately ahead of time in that context. Yeah. So like, and we talked about this before in a in a previous um, Sunday school about chapter three, God's eternal decrees. How we're not we're not denying that God has foreknowledge. He has foreknowledge. His but his will and his foreknowledge are married together. They are one and the same. We don't. Right. Well, that's the statement in this section that it out of his free grace of love, without any foresight of faith. So, um, what Kurt and I discussed this for several years as he fellowshiped with us, coming from that perspective. And originally, he would say, "Well, God knew; he he saw that we would choose to be foreordained before knew he predestined in that way." And I said, "Well." It's not that that's untrue. It's just it's more than that. Yeah. For no good reason in me, he chose me. Yeah, but plus, he says there's no one good, not even one. No well, one. Yeah. Well, we had all those kind of discussions. Right. And um, one thing I want to encourage you with, Rod, since you deal with this a lot, is that Kirk changed his view over time as he right. studied the scriptures. Right. So, yeah. Um, you know, if someone is interested in learning what God's word says, then they're going to grow in, in their yeah. And the, the, yeah, like you said, there's there's many ways to to come at that, but basically, uh, if a person wants to have objections to God's word, they're just going to have objections to God's word at the very end, and then we pray for the Holy for for God to be efficacious through his through his ordained instrument, right? Through his this ordained means of grace, by the power of his Spirit to change somebody's heart. So that they will now take Romans nine and say, "I believe," rather than "I reject it." Well, there's there, there's, there's. Does this mean that people who don't buy that point of view cannot be saved? And he said to you all their lives. The Baptists have believed this for decades. Right. They used to be reformed. Baptists used to be completely right. Calvinistic, but they're not so. So then the question is: Is Luther in heaven? <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you know Luther had that idea of well resisting grace. Okay. Um, and then that, that's where you go back to, no, we're not saved by works, even theological works or theological perfection, right? We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Um, yeah. So, so um, what the Lutheran church believes is 
not the same as what Luther believed. Hmm. Yes, but I, I so I, influenced a lot by yeah. Langton's views. And right. But I believe that on that point of predestination, that Luther was one of the ones that said himself that, you know, you can resist grace. And this is where Calvin differed with one of the major differences between Calvin and Luther. Well, um, all I can tell you is I read uh, Luther's uh, essay on the bondage of the will, and I found no difference in the Presbyterian position. Okay. So he basically said, you're, you're a slave until, until your uh, will is unbound by Jesus. Okay, okay. So now, it doesn't mean he was consistent in other places, yeah. but at least in that point, that time. Um, Just what I remember from my church history notes was this was one of one of the major differences between Calvin and Luther was okay. this 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 idea of Certainly, resisting irresistible grace. What's their confession? The Augsburg Confession? It's certainly you can see the difference in that. But but I, I always thought it was more due to Luther than Luther, but I could be wrong. Um one final thing to end <clears throat> and we, we touched upon this um, why does God do all of this? Why does God do any of this? Um, it's to the praise of His glorious grace. And we read those verses in, in Ephesians where it repeat, not just once and twice, but many times, over and over again, emphasizes that you know, it's to the praise of His glorious grace that He does this. It's to the praise of His glorious grace that, that he, 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 he elects us. And even if you go back to Romans 9 or... Uh, I think it was Romans 9, that passage about God's double, priestess, double predestination, the Bible also makes the same point that even those that he predestines for de destruction, it's to, the reason he does that is so that those who are saved would praise and give glory to him for his glorious grace. What if, uh, this is Romans 9, verse 22, what if this is Paul in response to somebody who says, well, that's not fair. God predestines some clay to, to destruction. Um, and this is Paul's response in verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So there, Paul even mentions that the vessels of wrath, it's to, it's for God to reveal his power and his wrath and his glory. But then even in that, his mercy is revealed, right? His, the, the glory of his mercy is revealed to those who, those vessels who have received mercy. Um, so everything God does, it's for his glory. Uh, to the praise of His glory, uh, glorious grace. Okay, so so this section just kind of goes more in depth into uh, these diff various aspects of predestination. Any any questions or, or comments before uh, we we end Sunday school? I think as always, um, this is when when you're when you're at a coffee table with somebody who who. Who has trouble with predestination? It's a it's a circular discussion. It's a circular because uh, 
if they want to object to the end, they will keep on objecting to the end no matter what evidence you, you present to them. Um, it's more an emotional thing I find most people that I've dealt with is that just doesn't seem fair. That yeah. doesn't seem, it's not just to say that God will choose regardless of what time people do in their life. Yeah. And, you know, that's always what it comes back to, I find. It's this, this emotional angst or rejection because of this. Yeah. They have a visceral reaction to it. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate, um, having sat on the Dr. Boyce's teaching, uh, just brand new believer, is his oft-stated uh, phrase, uh, what's fair is everyone goes to hell. Yeah. And so wow. we, don't, we do not go to God for fairness. We go to God for mercy. And we, we thank God for our salvation. Yeah. We don't, and we don't, as creatures, say, hey, that's, that's not right of you, God. That, yeah. that is a sinful yeah. attitude to try to judge our creator. I remember saying that once to a missionary when I was helping do Chinese uh, Bible studies here in West Philadelphia for Chinese students who were here. And we were talking before they showed up one day after I was helping for a while. And I said that exact thing that what's fair is that everyone's condemned and goes to hell. And she said, You believe that? And I said, Yes, that's what the Bible said. And she just said to me, I'm not helping more. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, fine with me. I will say, as a, as a pastoral point, sometimes we who believe the scripture and who are on the right side of this discussion, sometimes we can win the argument but lose the, lose the person. And I'm not saying water down the word so we win the person. Not the, at all. Okay? Um, but, yeah. Rod, you, you made a very good point. A lot of times the objections come from a personal place. Either they're trying to assert their own virtue, either they've been rebelling against God, and it's at that it's it's on this point where they have the most rebellion. And by discussing it, discussing what Scripture actually says about it, how clear Scripture is, you are basically engaging their 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 you know their ground zero of of rebellion. Sometimes it's because they have a very dear loved one who who hasn't believed, and they've tried and tried and tried, and they love them. They don't want to think that this person is predestined for hell. But this is what stood in the way of Jewish evangelism. I used to help a guy named Ron Elkin coming to Los Angeles. We used to go into the, uh, the, the Jewish people's apartments and talk to them about the gospel. And that was their objection. Now, they had also Jewish history. Are we done? They said, your relatives were very kind, generous.